Hello, I'm Amanda Decadene, and you're listening to The Conversation, a show where I talk to the people I find most inspiring about the issues and life experiences that really matter. This week on The Conversation, I'm talking to award-winning photojournalist and author Lindsay Adario. In this episode, we talk about photographing Afghanistan under Taliban rule, being kidnapped twice, and how the pandemic gave her new respect for stay-at-home moms. I'm so excited to sit down with my dear friend, Lindsay Adario, who happens to be one of the most celebrated and profound photojournalists, female photojournalists that there is. I will not be able to do you justice by going through everything that I know that you've done. I think it would be really helpful for the people listening for you to share a little bit about the wars that you've covered and the work that you've done so that we can get the full expansive scope of Lindsay Adario. <laughs> Let's just say I had uh, basically no life until I was about 35. So from the time I was about 21 until I was 35, I lived on airplanes or in war zones. And so I started uh, in Afghanistan in 2000 when it was under Taliban rule. And basically borrowed money from my sister, went over to Afghanistan to cover the lives of the lives of women living under the Taliban. And photography was illegal at the time. So it was basically me sneaking around with a camera in my bag and full hijab and sneaking into women's hospitals and into people's homes and trying to document that. And then the year later, September 11th happened. So I had no war experience at that point. I think I was 27 and I went, um, I flew to Afghanistan, I flew to Pakistan and then waited for the fall of the Taliban in Kandahar and covered the war in Afghanistan and then went to cover the war in Iraq two years later. And then from there went to Darfur, Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, South Sudan. Uh, I was in Somalia. Uh, Libya, Lebanon, the Lebanon-Israel War, um, Yemen, uh, Syria. Yeah. So um, this is probably, I mean, you, you, for a large part of your life, have been a world-traveling, award-winning, extraordinary photojournalist. And as long as I've known you, you have been off around the world in various war-torn countries, bringing us really crucial stories about what is happening in different countries that we would never have known about these things had you not have taken your camera and gone into those places. How has it been for you being in one place? for the last year, because you probably have not done this since you were a kid. <laughs> well, I, at least since I gave birth, I would say. <laughs> this right. is the longest I've ever been in the UK. Um, I did manage to sneak in a few trips. I was in, uh, I went to McAllen, Texas, which is the border with Mexico to photograph COVID uh, in the hospitals there when they were overrun and they were, uh, the ICUs were full. And then I came back in October, November, I was in California uh, covering the wildfires for a climate change story and also did elections in Philadelphia. So 
those two trips have sort of sustained me, but it definitely is the first time uh, in years, uh, at least a decade, that I have been in one country for almost a year. And I've really had to focus on my family and my personal life. And I think um, that, you know, for some people is a really welcoming thought. And for others like me, who's used to being in three, four countries a month, uh, it was pretty terrifying because I'm not used to being a full-time mother. Uh, We're very lucky we have someone who helps us at home uh, for our one-year-old. But um, it's been really challenging, like any mother can attest who has a child who's homeschooling. Uh, that's well, you been have two really children. difficult. We have two kids. One is uh, actually in school, so we've had to do the homeschooling, and one is one. So that's been a whole different sort of challenge. But I think it's, um, I've really had to refocus my energy and learn how to be a mother for the first time, really. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring that up. And I'm so pleased that you bring that up because I've had a similar experience where I have immense respect for women who choose to the who choose the full-time job of being a stay-at-home mom. And that was not something that I wanted to choose for myself. Um, and also having been at home for the last year, um, realizing that. A, I have even more respect for stay-at-home moms because, oh my God, um, really, really intense. Um, And also doing, trying to do some semblance of a job whilst being a full-time stay-at-home mom and the amount of meals and trying to navigate groceries and, you know, safety issues with COVID whilst taking care of kids and a family in a home. It is, I've... I have also been very challenged by it. Exactly. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm being like, polite, yeah. challenged by it. It's been hard yeah, as fuck, I mean, let's be honest. It sucked. I mean, it's been really hard. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I think uh, in one sense, being a photojournalist is one of the most selfish professions because I'm constantly on the road and I'm, when I'm sort of in situ, whenever I'm where I'm supposed to be, I'm focused 100% on my work. And so you know, that's a bit selfish because I leave my husband uh, at home with two children. And and I think this has been a different, a really tough time. And I think also being with my husband nonstop for a year, you know, that's, it's been great on one hand because we've probably spent more time cumulatively in this year than we have in 15 years together. But I think, um, you know, it's hard to work out of a home with, uh, you know, four people. Well, it's it's also, I mean, I just want to go back to what you said about being a photojournalist in many ways is a a job that you get to leave the home and you get to go out in the world and be fully focused and immersed in what you're doing, which, um, you know, for many years was considered a more of a typical male role where men got to do that and women did not get sure. to do that. Um, I also have the experience of getting to to go and work and be fully immersed in what I do. And I, I would not be able to do it if I did not have, uh, you know, my husband who, uh, you know, was able to stay at home when I needed to go off and do stuff. And I know you have that with Paul as well. Yeah. Yeah. And how how have you navigated uh, a relationship where your husband is the person who 
is staying at home and watching kids. Has that been tricky to navigate or is that something that you kind of, you laid the groundwork at the beginning of the relationship? Yeah, I think it's really uh, how you start off. You know, for me, uh, I was sort of uh, in and out of war zones consistently when I first met Paul. And so I was almost never home. I basically came home. We were living at the time in Turkey, and I basically only went home from Afghanistan or Iraq or Darfur to do laundry and then sort of unpack and repack my bag and go. And so when Paul and I got serious and it was clear that we were eventually going to get married, you know, there was a moment where he brought up children and I said, yeah, I, I'd like to have kids, but I'm not going to quit my job. So if you're willing to change your job because he was a journalist at the time, or if you're willing to take a job that you will be home, uh, then that's fine. But I will not be that person. I will never be the woman who is home all the time being a full-time mother. That's just not who I am. Well, that's actually close to the title of your book, which is It's What I Do. Correct. <laughs> and I thought that was a very ballsy title for your autobiography because a lot of people have over the years criticized and questioned you for continuing to go out into the field, into war zones and risking your life after you became a mother. Yeah. And I know you've been asked by a lot of people, like, how can you do that? How can you still do your job after you're a mom? And I love that you called your book, It's What I Do, because this is what you do. Yeah. And I think, you know, it doesn't bother me that people ask me that question, you know, do you still go to war zones now that you're a mother? But it does bother me that no one asks men that question. You know, it bothers me that I consistently sit on panels. I I um, am giving talks alongside men and my male colleagues who never get asked the same questions that I do. And I think, you know, no matter how far we've come as women, there is a sexism and there is a, a chauvinism in our society that we cannot shed. And I think, yes, I'm in a man's profession. Yes, often when I'm on a front line, there are very few other women, if any, alongside me. But, you know, I think it's my personal life and my husband and I make decisions as a couple and it's no one else's business. And I think also one of the things I talked about very candidly in my memoir is the fact that when I was pregnant, I continued to travel and that was incredibly controversial. So when I went on book tour, it was so interesting to me because people were speaking to a woman like me who's been kidnapped twice. I've been shot at. I, you know, have been threatened with execution. I've worked in war zones for two decades. And the question they asked me was, how can you go to a war zone pregnant? And mm. I thought, well, is this the 1950s? Like, I, I just, you know, for me, it's, it was really interesting. And it was often actually the women who were worse than the men. Well, that's an interesting point that you bring up both of these things. I, you know, you said, are we in the 1950s? I think that circling back to what we were just talking about with families, both parents or, you know, entire families having to now live together at home and try to work, have, have some semblance of jobs um, and do, do all of this stuff now. I think, interestingly, men for the first time have probably uh, had insight into what it has been like for women for many years, which is we're, we're doing two full-time jobs, our actual paid job and then the unpaid 
job of being a parent. So I wonder if, even though you said it was mostly women who asked you that one question of all the things that people could ask you about, they're asking you about something that is, quite frankly, irrelevant. Um, But I wonder if men are going to have more insight into what it's been like for us for generations now. I mean, that's interesting. You know, Paul and I have been together for 15 years. And, you know, of course, when we first met, he cooked all the time. He was uh, sort of, you know, he did everything. And I don't think he's cooked a meal aside from working the barbecue, which is a very sort of manly thing to do. But he probably hasn't cooked a meal in 10 years, you know. And so in this pandemic, you know, there were times I've been covering COVID in the UK uh, for the last year. So I've been in and out of ICUs. I've been working at hospitals. I've been in funeral homes. And I would leave at six o'clock in the morning, spend all day in a mortuary, come back, cook dinner for the family, make sure that, you know, put Alfie in the bath. I mean, you know, it's like you cannot miss a beat when you are a woman during the pandemic. You know, I think it just is sort of how we operate. We're consistently multitasking and always thinking sort of 10 steps ahead. I think the one thing that has been really interesting for me this past year is that while I'm really accustomed to working in dangerous situations, I am not accustomed to doing that at home where Mm. I can bring that danger to home to my family. So I think uh, when the pandemic first started, I was really ambivalent about photographing because how could I go out and sort of possibly, you know, be in contact with people who have COVID and then perhaps bring that home to my family. My son was only one at the time. Uh, Lucas was eight and Paul. And I was really worried about how to do that in a safe way. Yeah. And and how do you explain to Lucas, I mean, you know, what your job is when you have, I mean, obviously it needs to be age appropriate, right? But you just described spending all day in a mortuary. When you come home, what do you say you've done that day? You know, I try to be honest with him without scaring him. And I think there's sort of obviously a fine line. I leave a lot out. Um, I explain, you know, he knows when I'm going to the hospital, he knows and he sees the pictures when they're published in the New York Times or National Geographic. I show him the work uh, and we talk about it. So I try, you know, he's nine now and I feel like ever since he was very, very small, when I would come home from Congo or when I would come home from South Sudan, I would sit him on my lap and show him pictures of refugee camps and explain you know, these are children or these are families who don't have a home. They're living in a tent. They have to look for their water. So I try to sort of explain to him the things I can when I can, because I think that's the least I can do in terms of bringing something back that's not traditional education and not a traditional mother figure, because I will never be that person. Yeah, I think that's incredibly valuable. I know for myself that your work especially with the refugee kids, was really impactful for my kids. I mean, Ella and Sylvan were how old when that work came out? It was how many years ago? 2009. So that was 11 years ago. Okay. So, and when you did your... No, no, that was 2016. Sorry, that body of work was 2016. Okay. So they were, Sylvan and Ella were nine or 10. And I remember... 
uh, when you you know you were doing your book tour and you and I were doing all those interviews together, and uh, Sylvan specifically would come with me, and he knew the story behind every single one of those kids, those refugees. So great, <laughs> you know. And that's yeah, that's great. I mean, for me, it's like you know, I didn't write the book for myself. I wrote the book because for many, many reasons, part of it was just sort of therapeutic after having been through what I went through in Libya. But I think, you know, one of the goals that me and and my editor at Penguin Random House, uh, Ann Godolph, had was for sort of young people to read it. Not too young, that it would be terrifying, but sort of teenagers, people who were able to process anything. And I And I think now when I see like Penn State has used it as required reading for all freshmen coming in. There is nothing better for me because I feel like the only thing that I can sort of offer people is perspective on the rest of the world and how people live and and situations in really remote areas and hardships for women. And I think that's the most gratifying thing. So when you brought Sylvan to my talks, it was so exciting to me, you know, to see you with your children there. Because yes, the material is difficult, but, you know, kids see a lot of violence anyway. They see it in Fortnite. They see it in all of the video games they're playing. So why not see a reality? Well, that's a great question. And I agree with you. And I think it is really important for my kids to be exposed to real life. That is, of course, age appropriate, but certainly... um, you know, I think the entire world has been exposed to death and to sickness in a way that we have never had uh, this level of consciousness around death. And it's still not mu- exactly. much consciousness, right? <laughs> so it's still, you know, it's death is one of the, it's the only inevitability. And it is one of the things that people do not want to go near because it is so sure. scary because it's the unknown. It's the, the inevitable sure. guarantee that is unknown. And so sure. I think we actually are doing our kids um, and our communities a massive disservice in Western culture to not invite a dialogue about death and for it not sure. to be something. We put our old people, we shove them in homes. The the elderly in, in um, retirement homes and hospices were some of the hardest hit. Why? Because they're shoved away. They don't even know what those numbers are, right? Exactly. They put people in exactly. homes and leave them to die. And in Eastern culture, death is celebrated. Elders are celebrated. They're honored for their wisdom and their experience and their insight. And I'm a big advocate for removing the stigma around death. And I think this time that we're in is a wonderful opportunity to normalize it. Sure. But I think there's been a huge amount of censorship in general around the pandemic. I think, you know, just living in London, I've been in the UK for nine years and being here and seeing what it's like to try and get access to the hospitals, to try as a photojournalist who, you know, has clearly gone through an entire career in a respectful manner with integrity, it's been almost impossible to access the hospitals that I've accessed. You know, the first time around, uh, it took uh, from mid-March until the end of May to get into the first hospital. I mean, I felt like I was working in North Korea, you know, I, it's, it's been extraordinarily difficult. And so I think there has been, you know, the first wave, no one really wanted to show the toll here. And I don't know if that's because perhaps because the UK was the last country to put in a lockdown, 
There were so many deaths. They were sort of, you know, overwhelmed. But I think whatever it is, it's been really interesting to me to see the Western approach to covering, you know, stories at home. It's been pretty hypocritical because I think it's okay for us as sort of Westerners to go to Africa and photograph their wars. But when we're covering sort of a war at home, it's completely censored. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think there's sort of a, uh, I think there was sort of an arrogance in the beginning of the pandemic, like we can handle this. You know, we have the best doctors, we have all the tools and and we failed. You know, I think, I think uh, the numbers of dead, the toll has been pretty extraordinary. And so I think this time around, it's been interesting to watch uh, the NHS as the hospitals filled up once again for the second wave. They kind of needed the journalists to scare the public into staying home. So they started inviting journalists in to photograph the toll of COVID and to photograph how dramatic it was. But it's, you know, it felt like propaganda, you know. So I think Mm. it's really um, it's been interesting to just see worldwide sort of who has got who has been able to get get access in terms of what countries have opened up. Italy was incredible because they were sort of the first country in Europe who was hit. And they just made a decision, Okay, we're going to let journalists cover this because we want to prevent this from happening in other countries in Europe and around the world. So they kind of open their doors so that the world can take it seriously. And no one else really did that. That's so interesting for you. Like, obviously, you think in a way that is different because you're a journalist. And so you're looking at globally, oh, who are the countries who are willing to share the reality? Who are the ones who are sure. covering up? Yeah, fascinating. So in in all of your travels, and you've documented a lot of death over the years, what has been different for you about documenting COVID deaths? Oh, um, It's a tough question because I think when I'm working, I'm so methodical about how I'm working. And I, you know, I see death all around me almost no matter where I am, whether I'm covering a war and people are getting killed from bombing or if it's cholera or if it's malaria or whatever it is. But I think with the pandemic, the difference is the proximity to home. And I guess the fact that I can wake up and drive 30 minutes and see, you know, death after death or see person on a ventilator and a ventilator and a ventilator. And it just, it really rings home. You know, it's the first time that I think, wow, that could really be my own mother. That could be any one of us because that's how COVID is, you know. And I think that's what's been scary is just being sort of the proximity to home. And how has that been for you not having that separation where you're having to go to work and experience and document what, you know, what you've been doing and then go home and put it down? How do you do that? How do you put it down so that when you come in and put your one-year-old in the bath or read a bedtime story, you don't have that on you and in your, in your, your mind still? I mean, look, I've been doing this for two decades now. So the like sort of the one tool I've learned is how to compartmentalize and how to move from one situation to another and to try to uh, process things when the time is right. And I think 
having a camera, as you well know, as a photographer, I think it creates this separation and it creates this ability for me to separate myself emotionally from uh, whatever I'm photographing, whether that is here or whether that is in another country. I think the difference is I only have about 45 minutes to an hour to make that transition between home and, you know, putting Alfie in the bath or reading a story to Lucas and when I'm at a funeral and or, you know, at, in a mortuary. So I think that's the difference. But I think my camera, uh, my viewfinder will always provide me with that separation. And that creates sort of almost an emotional separation in my own brain and in my own head that I'm able to keep kind of in its place until whatever given moment it is that, that I choose to sort of process and, and express that. You must have immense control over your emotional regulation. Yeah, but then, you know, I'll be on like the Peloton and I'll be watching, you know, the <laughs> Alex Toussaint or whatever, however you pronounce his name. And he's clearly been through a lot in his background and he starts crying during class and then I'll start crying. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm on a Peloton. Like, what is wrong with right, me? You right, right. I think mean, it's obviously like my PTSD. It gets sort of unlocked when you see someone else emotional or when you see someone else who's been through, you know, a lot, you can recognize it right away. And that triggers me in a way that sort of I can't explain, you know. Right. It also gives you permission to feel it. You you brought up, you know, PTSD and trauma. And as you know, that's one of my favorite subjects. Um <laughs> I that's why I you mean, like me. <laughs> I love you. We we can trauma bond over so many things. Um, but you have experienced real trauma. Sure. Um, so in 2011, I was covering the Arab Spring in Libya, and so it was their popular uprising, and uh, it was March 15th, the Ides of March. And I had been working on the front line for, uh, for about two weeks, so super heavy fighting. And the front line uh, was moving closer for any of the journalists who were covering uh, the conflict in Libya. In eastern Libya, um, we had entered without visas because Gaddafi at that time obviously didn't want journalists covering the popular uprising. So in addition to the weapons and the you know, the the airstrikes and, and RPGs and incoming fire on the front line, one of our grave concerns was getting caught by Qaddafi's forces. And so uh, I was working with Tyler Hicks, Anthony Shadid, and Stephen Farrell one day on the front line. The fighting was very heavy. It had been heavy sort of consistently. And uh, Qaddafi's troops basically overran the position we were in. And as we went to flee to the east, which is where the rebels were, uh, Qaddafi's troops had set up a checkpoint on the road ahead, and we ran directly into one, into their troops. And basically, we were pulled out of the car. There was crossfire. Uh, we were taken hostage, laid on the ground, uh, basically uh, face down on the ground, had rifles, had AK-47s, each one of us to our heads. And... Each one of us sort of just pleaded for our lives. And in the end, they didn't execute us, but they tied us up and put us in vehicles on the front line. And essentially for over the course of a week, we were 
beaten, uh, tied up. For me, as the only woman, I was groped. Uh, we were threatened with execution repeatedly. We were put in a prison cell. Uh, and we just had no idea whether we would survive. And eventually we were flown to Tripoli, where we were put in a sort of VIP prison, which was an apartment, uh, and brought food and told if we looked out the window, they would kill us. And we were released eventually uh, after a week. I mean, I've heard that story so many times, and every time I hear it, and that was the light version. Um, that was light. <laughs> that was light, yeah. Um, it still gives me chills and is so distressing to hear. What was going through your mind at the time you were pulled out of the truck and laid on the ground, tied up? You know, I think... One thing that people tend to underestimate is sort of the survival mode and the fact that each one of us as human beings are hardwired to survive. And so for me, that was the second time I had been kidnapped. The first time was in Iraq in 2004 uh, outside of Fallujah, which was a Sunni stronghold. So and you had some kidnap skills? It's, I have some kidnap skills. I know kidnap skills pool. by Lindsay Adario. <laughs> I don't have many skills, but I can bake and I can be kidnapped. <laughs> yeah, you know how you know how to handle it. So what's kidnap one hundred and one? Yeah, what is? And you can take photos. And kidnap, yeah, I, I can take pictures. Okay, kidnap one hundred and one is what is is what? Stay calm. Number one, don't raise your voice. Don't panic. Don't scream. Don't make demands. Do whatever they tell you. That's that basically, for me, the way to stay alive is to just kind of do what they tell you and be very calm. And I think the problem is, is that it's terrifying. And as the days go on and as the day turns into night and it's dark and there are people touching my breasts and I don't know if that will turn into rape, you know, the panic rises. And I think the key is to try to just not let not let that overtake you. And I think there were moments, of course, throughout the week where I would break down and start crying, but I never yelled. And I think it's it's um it also depends on where you are and the culture that you're being, you know, I I'm familiar with the culture in the Middle East and, and North Africa. And I think, you know, I, I know as a woman to not scream and make demands. And I know that you know, if I say I'm scared, you are scaring me. And and it helped because it would kind of calm the situation down. So I think it's also important to be familiar with where you are and what the culture is and how to conduct yourself, because that is key. Um, but basically, for me, in those moments, I am sort of actively thinking about my next move, whether that's, you know, First of all, as the only woman, I'm always left in the car. The men are always pulled out of the car first. They're always sort of manhandled and very violently uh, shoved. And for me, they often look at me and just sort of leave me. And so it's not like there's anywhere for me to run to because I, you know, in the case of Libya and in Iraq, I was in the middle of the desert surrounded by insurgents in both places or in Libya surrounded by Gaddafi loyalists. So it's not like you could ever make a run for it. So at that point, um, 
the the rebels that we had actually been with started opening fire on Qaddafi's position. And so there were bullets everywhere. And I know as a photographer who's covered war that bullets will penetrate a car. And so I was not safe where I was. And so I had to figure out where I could run to, where was a place of cover. And that was a concrete building that was off to the side. So all of these calculations are taking time. And it's it seems to be happening in like over years, but it's split seconds. I mean, you're making split second decisions. And and ultimately, it's all about survival. So when I have a gun put to my head and I'm face down in the dirt and I've seen execution style, I mean, we all, uh, you know, when you grow up and you watch movies, you know what it looks like to be executed. And when it's me on the ground and I think I'm about to be executed, what is the only thing you can do is beg for your life. And so that's what I'm doing. I am begging and pleading for my life. And and I remember there was a moment where I looked to my right and all four of us were doing the same thing. And it was sort of just a line of us looking up into the barrel of a gun begging. And I think, you know, we were very lucky because any one of us could have been shot on that front line over the first three days. And no one would have been accountable because anything happens in war and especially on an active sort of front line because anyone could have said, oh, they got shot by accident. Um, so we were very lucky that we survived. All of that experience is in your body. What do you think that has done to you? How did that experience show up in your personal life and in your everyday life yeah. for years afterwards? Well, I think scientifically something has happened to my frontal cortex <laughs> because when I wrote my memoir, um, the Science Museum in New York City brought me in to basically analyze my brain because how do you, how does one uh, continue to function on a quote-unquote normal level when they've survived so much trauma? And I think the scientist who was interviewing me said that said something about my frontal cortex. And of course, I've forgotten. So that's the physical manifestation. Oh, I really want to know what that was. I really, yeah, where is that research? Can we get that? I really want to read that. I have no idea. You can okay. Google and Science Museum. I have no idea. But he did say okay. something. Um, he, it was very interesting how he did it because he kind of did what you're doing and asked me about the steps of the kidnapping and how I conducted myself. And he said, um, essentially, because I'm processing trauma in the moment rather than sort of shutting down and then processing it after the fact, I am less prone to PTSD. I'm less that is prone true. to, yeah. And so because it doesn't I'm have a chance to much, embed, it can't right. get its well, hooks into you. I mean, in the it's same somewhere. Way. Sure, it's somewhere, but I definitely, you know, I. It's it's very strange, given everything I've been through, that I am a very sort of happy person who goes through life kind of, as you know, I mean, we're yes. very good friends. And I think, you know, for me, um, it is about processing things. It is about not bottling them up. I also think that writing my book was a really cathartic process for me, where I had to go back and really think about uh, and process things that perhaps I had tucked away that I didn't even realize because there were moments when I was writing my book where I would just sort of realize I was weeping and I had just been writing and crying. And so I think, you know, 
it's a lot of it is about processing. And um, and I do allow myself to feel. I allow myself to cry. I allow myself, you know, especially now when I'm shooting, you know, I have moments all the time where I get sort of where I'm overcome with emotion and that's okay. It doesn't bother me. I don't feel weak. I don't feel, you know, it is who I am. You obviously did. You obviously grew up in a home where you were allowed to have feelings because to be able to feel those feelings in real time, I mean, most people don't know how to do that. They've not been given the space or encouraged to to process and to have a normal response to an experience, whatever that is. Even think about it: if kids fall over or they bang themselves, well, like you're fine. Don't cry. You know, it's fine. And there's a a certain amount of that that's healthy because you don't want to kind of like, you know, overparent, you know, and there is a part that's like, you're actually fine. There's nothing uh, serious here. But there's the other part that I see people do all the time, which is basically minimize your feelings. Mm -hmm. And I do think you're right that the key, in fact, um, I'm reading a book right now called Trauma Proofing Your Kids. Mm -hmm. And it's by one of the most uh, prolific leaders in trauma research, a man called Peter Levine. Mm-hmm. And I've read a lot of his books for adults. Um, and this is focused on on kids. And the the beginning of the book, they, uh, him and his co-author, talk about the fact that why is it that two kids could have the same traumatic experience and one, it manifests severely uh, and presents with right. much more acute, um, you know, symptomology, and the other one seems to be fine. Why is that? And they talked right. about the sooner you process it, the better, mm. because it doesn't become part of literally your epigenetics. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because it's exactly the same with war photographers and war correspondents. I think you know there. Are, I have some colleagues who who after years of doing this work, or even after the first experience of covering a war, they decide, you know what, I can't handle it. It's not for me, or it's just the darkness kind of overtakes their personality, and there are just too many sort of ghosts, and for lack of sort of a a better way to put it. But, you know, then there are people like me who it's been two, you know, 20 years that I've been covering war and seeing really traumatic things. But I... I can keep going ahead. And I think also part of that are the breaks that I take in between those assignments. You know, I'm not exclusively covering war. I'm not exclusively covering humanitarian crises. I cover other things. And so I think that's also really important. But then I also think it's what you touched on with your family life. You know, I, you know, my family, my family is incredible. I have amazing, you know, I was raised with incredible parents loving family, my sisters. We have this network of support, stability, and love that basically gives me the foundation to feel like I can do anything. And I think that's also, you know, it's provided me with sort of a resilience and a confidence to go through whatever I need to get through. Well, you bring up resilience, and that's something else that I, um, trauma and resilience are kind of my, my, keywords for the last couple of years, but especially the last year and looking at resilience and understanding. And the more research I do on resilience, the more I read about it, the more I uh, develop it and work on it myself and try to nurture it in my kids. Um, I think that that resilience is key. I don't want to say to surviving life, but certainly to being able to survive 
really challenging things, experiences or perspective or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Would you say that you have uh, strong resilience? I mean, it's so relative, you know, it's like compared to who? It, it's like compared to my colleagues, compared to my, you know, my peers, compared to the other mothers in the American school. I mean, it just, it's all relative. So I, I don't, I think everyone is really up against him or herself at the end of the day. So I think, yes, my resilience for me has, has I've been able to depend on it. I've been able to sort of keep moving ahead no matter what is put in front of me. And I think there are moments, of course, where I falter. There are moments where I need to take time out. There are moments where I need to just, you know, be home with my family. And I try to listen to my instinct because I think that's also a huge part of this, you know, of longevity and in, in not only, you know, in, in this career is, is having instinct and listening to it. So I think there are many different things that sort of feed into resilience. And for me, sure, I, I guess I guess one would call me resilient, but it really, I'm never happy with myself. So it just kind of depends. Okay, you just said you're never happy with yourself, and that is interesting to hear. Okay, but professionally, let's say. Okay, professionally. Okay, Okay. yeah, I'm happy. Reframe, reframe. Reframe. Yeah, (laughs) I was like, what, Liz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Okay, so let's talk about professionally. What, what, What do you want to cover that you've not been able to? What is the story that you are just dying to tell? I mean... God, such a hard question. First of all, I can, I'm asking I can, you lots of hard questions. I know I can barely get on a plane right now because I live in the UK and the vi- and the variant has basically banned me from every country. But I am uh, this year or last year I was supposed to be working on a five country climate change and women uh, story, like a huge comprehensive story. Um, and for National Geographic, it's with a grant from National Geographic. So I'm one of their explorers and it was all very exciting, but I can't travel anywhere. So that basically is now going to stretch into the next year or two whenever I can, I can get, uh, the vaccine. So that's a whole other question. Um, I think if, if that, if, if the pandemic wasn't happening and if I had the vaccine and I was able to travel, I would probably go back to Yemen right now. Um, I think for me, I'm always drawn to places that don't have a lot of coverage. And I think that that's a place that I would return to. I was there in 2018 uh, for the New York Times Magazine. I would go back. Um, I think America is a really interesting place right now. You know, I think there's so many interesting stories at home. You know, my home right now is is the UK, but for me, the United States will always be sort of my home. And I think that I would go back to the US and cover one of the many, many stories sort of plaguing the United States right now. There are so many things that need to be covered and there's a lot there's a lot to shine the light on to say the very least in yeah. this country. That's it, Lynn's. That's all of all our right, questions. My dear. Thank you. All right. Fabulous. I hope it was it's, all right. It was great. You're I mean, I'm always just so happy to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me. I always love to see you and talk to you. So, yeah. You too, Lynn's. Thank all you. All right. All right, love you, okay. Lynn's. Love you. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the conversation, please support the podcast by commenting, liking, and subscribing to wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And you can follow me on social media at Amanda Decadney on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.